this morning, uh, in light of the snowstorm, uh, I was sharing with James and Amy Cooper this morning when they got here that this Sunday would be really the test of who is listening and obeying the book of Hebrews in perseverance, who realized I better heed the warning and get to church even though there's snow out there. We would really find out. So take a look around. Praise the Lord for those who are here and pray for those who are not. They have a long ways to go in heeding the warnings. But then I was also told that uh, by James Cooper, as he came up just a moment ago for offering, that Keir Tinker has won the Perseverance Award 2014 so far in walking or something like that, or at least giving off the appearance that he walked to church (laughs) to indicate how much he really heeds the warnings and really wants to persevere. So Keir wins the award, but praise the Lord for the rest of you too. I'll read for you from Genesis 14. You don't need to turn there as we begin, uh, but I just want to read for you uh, the backdrop to our text this morning. Real briefly, there's just a small section, and we'll get to that uh, in just one moment. Just hear the text read um, that is the backdrop, uh, Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of uh, Shador Lomer, perhaps? And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Interesting there when we consider how we would really bring something home. We're making an argument, we're trying to establish an argument, we're trying to think what is its applicational. Here it is. This is the final to the, the argument. Yes, this makes sense. We would not usually appeal to the most mysterious and perhaps obscure individual to really bring home our point. And yet that is exactly what the apostle does here. To bring home the point of Christ's Christ's high priestly work and kingly work on our behalf. He appeals to this. That was it. I read for you the whole thing. One of the most mysterious and obscure individuals in all of Old Covenant history. And yet, he does so to further explain to us and intensify our understanding. And so, we have a lot of work to do. If out of that obscurity, we are going to intensify our understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have a lot of work to do. The comparison that the Apostle has put forward about Christ and Melchizedek, this figure that is mysterious and rather obscure, he has put this argument together three times already. If you've tracked, as we have preached so far up to chapter 7, there is a comparison that is appealed to three times already in the Apostle's preaching, referring to the supremacy of Christ in light of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. 
I have not necessarily dealt with it each time, or for that matter at all, because here it receives in chapter 7 its first full weight of the comparison of Christ to this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. So, how are we going to, together, through the text this morning, grow in our understanding of Christ and His supremacy through this mysterious figure and the apostles appealing to Him for our understanding? Well, I would suggest this. Procedurally, what I want to do together this morning is I am setting out to answer one main question with you. For your benefit and for mine, together out of Hebrews 7, I am seeking to propose and answer one question. I'll be signing books afterward. Because it is, as you'll see, a significant development in Hebrews 7. The question that I am posing Who is Melchizedek? Is the question. Okay? We're all on the same page. You're wondering. I'm wondering. It's not so profound. Read the text and you'll see. Everyone will wonder. Or if I read from you Genesis 14, you're still wondering. Who is Melchizedek? Okay, great. So let's ask that question. Who is he? And by answering it, furthermore apply. Okay, so we'll answer who he is, hopefully together we'll answer sufficiently who he is, and then we will apply, most importantly, what does that teach us about the supremacy of Christ? And then once we gaze upon him through Melchizedek, let's rest in him again and again and again and again. So who is this figure? How does he teach me about Jesus? And then thereby, how do I rest in what I have found? Okay? That is our procedure this morning. So let's begin with the text. If you're there in Hebrews 6, let's begin answering this question, who is Melchizedek? There in chapter 6, I say, because I want to pick up the argument uh, where he is continuing to explain this just prior to chapter 7 as we're continuing with the covenant with Abraham and how Abraham is working in the argument here, beginning with verse 19. If you look with me there, we'll read 19 and 20 of chapter 6 as it leads into chapter 7, answering this question, who is Melchizedek? Verse 19 of chapter 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. There's our hope. There's our anchor. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Great, we're looking to Jesus. And he describes. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in answering the question then, who is Melchizedek? If you read that like I read that, verses 19 and 20, then you are going to ask the same question that I am asking. Because it's a bit confusing and mysterious. Let me ask you. Is Jesus a priest forever? Okay, this, this, is, this, this is what you, I know, are wondering. Is Jesus a priest forever because Melchizedek is a priest forever? 
It says a relationship. Let me read for you again as you're considering. What does it say about Melchizedek? Most importantly, what does it say about the supremacy of Christ that I can then apply and rest in? Well, in order to get there, I must read the text and answer the question. Verse 20. Having become a high priest, Jesus is forever after the order of Melchizedek. We must ask, how does forever relate to order? Those are the two things that we're asking. Forever, how does forever relate to order? Those are the two terms we're trying to bridge the gap between. We're wondering this. Is Jesus said to come after Melchizedek forever because Melchizedek rules and reigns forever? Is that what is related between the two of them? And you're all like, I'm more confused now than when we began. We're getting further from the answer, not closer. That is, let me put it in the easiest terms, what I'm confusingly saying. Jesus is a priest forever, as in forever, because he's coming after the order of Melchizedek. So is it Father, Son, Spirit, Melchizedek? Right? That's what you're wondering too. Because this this guy is a priest forever. And the only reason that Jesus is, is because he came after the order of, that is what belongs to forever and order of Melchizedek. So it's Father, Son, Spirit, and Melchizedek. Has to be. Or Jesus isn't a priest forever. Because he is only by virtue of coming after order of Melchizedek. This is extremely confusing. We have to mine this out because we have to answer how do they correspond? The quick answer to that is, if it is a, what would that be, a, a quad triunity, quad unity. We believe in triunity, Father, Son, Spirit, right? Not and Melchizedek, sharing an essence. They don't. Quick answer is no. But you've come persevering through the snow for the long answer. And I'm thankful because I'm going to provide the long answer quick answer is no. They're not related in essence. Forever, Jesus' forever does not relate to Melchizedek's order by essence. They relate and correspond through purpose. Order and forever are related to one another in this text by purpose, not essence. What is, how do we know that they're related through purpose? Well, look in the text. It's already been established what we're dealing with according to 6, 7, and so on and so forth. What have we been dealing with for the last couple of weeks as we've been mining out the truths of chapter 6? Look at there, the apostle inserted already is the critical mass of this passage, and it is verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, what? What is he showing? The unchangeable character of his purpose. And we mined out how that relates to you already in one form of the promise, what God is absolutely committed to. And he wants you to be sure of that. And that is his purposes in you. 
And then from that purpose, we find in purpose, Jesus and Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, relate to one another in purpose of God executing his perfect purposes for your good and his glory. Therein in purpose, he is unchanging in his purpose for you. And in the vehicle of purpose now, we see Jesus and Melchizedek relate. Not in essence, but in purpose. In other words, let me summarize this way. God has a purpose. Agreed? Yes, praise the Lord. He has a purpose for your life. A purpose for all of creation. A purpose that he is bringing about in Christ for a renewed creation. He has a purpose that is unchangeable in its character. He is committed and has purpose. And he is forecasting that purpose in Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He's forecasting the purpose. He's ordering, the text says. Jesus is coming after the order of Melchizedek. That ordering or that forecasting or that structuring of his purpose that he is achieving right now, he structured or ordered or forecasted in Melchizedek in Genesis 14. In that small little obscure text, he was in that text to Abraham, forecasting, structuring, ordering what will be achieved and fulfilled in Christ. Therein they relate through that purpose or that structure. Melchizedek and Jesus correspond. What God is showing Abraham. Consider, I'll just give you a small little note on the side. This is in the margin section of, of, of the manuscript. And it's not even in the margin. It's not even written down. I just find this interesting. I think you would too. Genesis 14, as you notice there, and I'll leave it to you to wrestle with. Do you notice what Melchizedek provides Abraham for nourishment? He shows up and he provides Abraham for nourishment, bread and wine. Interesting, isn't it? This priestly figure, this kingly figure is appearing to Abraham and through him God is forecasting or foreshadowing his purposes to Abraham and all the descendants who share the faith of Abraham and in so doing he provides Abraham with bread and wine. Melchizedek is forecasting, God is through Melchizedek forecasting and ordering what can only be fulfilled by Jesus Christ to Abraham and to all of the descendants who come after him. That's how they relate. What do we call this relating together? Or let me not skip a single procedural question because I know you track them exactly. So let, let me not skip. 
The next question we must ask ourselves. So if they relate in purpose, not in essence, so it's not Father, Son, Spirit, Melchizedek. It's still Father, Son, Spirit only, operating through Melchizedek, forecasting what will be fulfilled in Christ. What is the purpose wherein they relate? What is that purpose where Melchizedek and Jesus correspond or relate? Well, generally speaking, I've already given it away. It's the covenant of Abraham. He's forecasting the purpose that he is going to initiate through Abraham and to all the heirs of the promise. They relate to one another generally in the covenant to Abraham. More specifically, could I suggest to you how they relate in that purpose? It is this. God is forecasting in Melchizedek his purpose for eternal salvation and priestly representation to all who share the faith of Abraham. None of you just fell on the ground, so I must have read it too fast. Think millennia ago. And here you sit as the fruits of what was forecasted through a man named Melchizedek, accomplished in Christ. You sit and learn and celebrate on March 2nd, 2014. Amazing. The unchangeable character of his purpose. What was God forecasting through Melchizedek that could only be fulfilled in Christ? God's purpose of eternal salvation and priestly representation for all who share in the faith of Abraham. He was forecasting what is yours today in Christ. The unchangeable character of his purpose. So this provides us with the first portion of our answer to the question, who is Melchizedek? Who is he? I would give you a term or a vocabulary word here of who is Melchizedek? He is a type, or the text says, order. He is a type of Christ. What does it mean for someone to be a type? We consider the priestly role, the kingly role, the tabernacle. We can consider uh, various individuals and institutions in the Old Testament. And what are they serving ultimately? But they are types of what God is fulfilling in Jesus Christ. How is Melchizedek a type? What do we mean by that? But the Melchizedek symbolizes and anticipates God's promise that could only be kept and secured through Jesus Christ. That is who he is. So as you're reading the text, you're not thinking, Jesus is a priest forever only because he came like Melchizedek, who obviously therefore must be a priest forever. They must be like the same. They're not. Forever and order relate to purpose. And Melchizedek is serving a purpose. And that is forecasting, symbolizing, anticipating what could only be kept and secured through Jesus Christ. That is, in a phrase, we would suggest this about Melchizedek. Who is he in the short? Who is this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, that shows onto the scene and blesses Abraham, and Abraham turns and gives him a tenth of the spoils? He is a type of Christ. That is what he is. He is a type of Christ. He is not Christ. And he is not sharing in the essence of Christ, belonging to the triunity. He is a type of Christ. A forecasting, a ordering, a structuring of 
what only Christ can fulfill. Interesting now, isn't it? The bread and the wine. I leave that to you to wrestle with. A beautiful picture of what God is promising in Melchizedek. Now, notice four mysterious promises in the text together, verses 1 through 3, four mysterious promises that God forecasts. So we're saying that's what he's doing in Melchizedek in Genesis 14, is forecasting or ordering what can only be fulfilled through Christ. But I want to isolate four mysterious promises that God is forecasting through Melchizedek regarding the supremacy of Christ. So now we're building our bridge. We're answering question, who is he? He is a type of Christ. And then we're continuing to build, what then does this teach me about Christ? If he is a type of Christ, why is the writer appealing to him to strengthen my joy and intensify my understanding of Christ? Well, he does it through four mysterious promises that have been fulfilled only in Christ, who is supreme. Let me read the text for you, and then I'll pull out the four promises that are forecasted through the man Melchizedek in that short little text of Genesis 14. Verse number one, for this Melchizedek, what he just said, after the order of Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, he begins to identify him explicitly here in breaking it down. He is the king of Salem, priest of the most high God met with Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Again, we already read the background text to this. And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And then the description begins to build on who he is. He is first, by translation of his name. Number one, he is the king of righteousness. So I said there's four promises here that God is forecasting that only Jesus Christ can fulfill. What is the promise, number one, that he is forecasting through this mysterious figure by translation of his name? Jesus and Melchizedek relate in purpose. He is forecasting what? That Christ would be the king of righteousness. That is four mysterious promises that God forecasts through Melchizedek regarding the supremacy of Christ. Number one, he forecasts there is to come a true king of righteousness. What stands out about this mysterious figure through uh, the translation of his name, king of righteousness, is that you consider the context wherein uh, Melchizedek was. At that point within human history, there is great evil and wickedness upon the earth, right? By Genesis 14. And he is somehow coming out of a very godless situation, and he is confessing supremely God Most High. Did you notice in his interaction with Abraham in Genesis 14, the two of them share a similar theological confession? Melchizedek isn't like a king of righteousness, and he's related to some other god. He is identifying himself with God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Abraham repeats that same blessing in that little exchange. They are united on the worship of the very same God. Melchizedek, who is he? As an individual, as a historical man, 
I don't know. But he is a king of righteousness in a very godless land. God uniquely worked in this man, Melchizedek, in a very godless situation and culture to be marked by righteousness. It instructs on so many levels about what God can do in our lives in the context of difficult age within which we live. Here's this man, Melchizedek, living in a very godless culture, Canaanites, standing out because of God's work in him as a king of righteousness, forecasting what ultimately a standard of righteousness that could only be achieved in Jesus. I consider context with you then because of the second promise. So one, promise being revealed is that there is a king who will bless Abraham and all of his descendants, a king of pure righteousness. Second promise being forecasted that relates from Melchizedek, relates with Jesus according to the unchangeable purposes of God that is revealed in Melchizedek about Jesus is secondly, he is a king of peace. Look in the text there. So first, he is, at the uh, end of verse 2, he is, number one, a king of righteousness. And then he is also, secondly, king of Salem. That is, and this is what that means, king of peace. What is the role of Salem here? That is the translation, king of peace. Salem is derived from the term for peace. What do you know that sounds like Salem? King of, and you're thinking geographical location, Salem, Jerusalem. Okay, great. Because we find that if we cite biblically and traditionally in biblical text, we can look at places like Psalm 76 too, where Zion, Jerusalem, and Salem are same location. So this individual appearing out of nowhere in jumping onto the scene in this small little episode and blessing Abraham is a king of righteousness in the place of peace. He is a king of peace ruling over Jerusalem. That's mysterious indeed because we don't really know anything more about it in its historical context. What was going on in the place other than wickedness and godlessness everywhere? And standing out of that is this man, Melchizedek. That God is uniquely working in, ordering and structuring his purposes that he will keep on your behalf through Jesus. A man of pure righteousness. One who will rule over God's people in peace. He is a man of righteousness. He is a man of peace. And this is being revealed to Abraham. in reference to what God will do for Abraham and all who share in the faith of Abraham. A third blessing that sticks out or mysterious promise that God is revealing through this mysterious exchange of Abraham and this 
figure, this obscure figure who stands out in the Old Testament that helps us understand the work of Jesus Christ is third. If you look in the text there, he is without, number three, father or mother or genealogy. He is without them. Now, that is purposely mysterious, isn't it? When you look, if, if you were reading through the book of Genesis, you would recognize something very quickly about the book of Genesis that would really stick out, and it would scream at you as a reader. When you jump into this man Melchizedek, all of a sudden out of chapter 14, here you are reading, and here is this man Melchizedek who shows up with bread and wine, by the way, to bless Abraham, and then he's gone. You're like, wait a minute. Here we are in chapter 14, and ever since the very beginning of ordering of creation, I have watched genealogy after genealogy after genealogy after genealogy after genealogy. And then I continue to read the book of Genesis, and I understand, how is the book of Genesis instructing me and teaching me about the storyline of Genesis? Oh, it's teaching me about its people's places and times through genealogies. So genealogies are critical components of the book of Genesis. Great, so I'm going to learn a lot about Melchizedek through the genealogy, just like everybody else. Oh, wait, 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 no, there, there is no genealogy for Melchizedek. And then we rejoice because of the unchangeable purposes, unchangeable character of God's purpose. By inspiration, he omits a genealogical record of a man named Melchizedek. Why? Why would he omit the genealogical record of this man named Melchizedek that we know so little about? Why? Because he is forecasting, ordering, structuring the glory of Christ through this figure or type of Christ. So that he appears in his function to have no genealogical record. No father and no mother. The last promise that we recognize that was purposely omitted was that he has no record, no genealogical structure that we can trace back to his ancestry. We just see this man appear in time to a generation that has no genealogical record because he is ordering and structuring what will be fulfilled in Christ. Four, the fourth promise that he is ordering through Melchizedek that will be fulfilled in Christ is that if you look there in the text, the fourth element is neither does he have beginning of days or end of life. That's a problem for us, isn't it? We're right back where my question and answer has fallen short. Okay, so we're back at the point of friction, right? We're saying, okay, so forever, Jesus is a priest forever only because he came after the forever order of Melchizedek. No, we got rid of that one, right? Because we recognize they relate to purpose, not essence. But it seems back here now, we're back into that essence category, right? Because notice the text of what it says about Melchizedek. He neither had beginning of days nor end of life. But he resembles the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Uh-oh. We do have Father, Son, Spirit, and Melchizedek. 
okay, wait, slow down, take a deep breath, and we still find out we believe in a triunity. Because we recognize, how, how, is, how is the text functioning? That is, think with me again on the genealogy. With the genealogy, it is purposely omitted. Why? Because he's serving a purpose. And the omission of his genealogical record serves the purpose for which he is incorporated in Scripture. He is forecasting who Jesus will be. Continue with that line of thinking. He is without death. No, 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 no. Remember, in the narrative, that is in Genesis 14, he seems to just be gone. He appears and then leaves. So he did live forever? No. It's serving and ordering or a structuring or a forecasting that can only be fulfilled in Christ. He is serving in that narrative a purpose that serves God's purpose that is unchangeable that will be fulfilled perfectly of what is forecasted. It'll be ultimately concluded and fulfilled in Jesus. So Melchizedek appears, here he is, and disappears. There he goes. Everyone is looking at me cross-eyed. So let me just read what I wrote. Maybe it'll be clearer. The fourth element that is forecasted through Melchizedek is he is without burial. As far as the narrative record is concerned, Genesis 14, this is what the apostle is arguing for. As far as the narrative record of Genesis 14 is concerned, Melchizedek remains a priest forever. We never saw it come to a completion. We never saw him die. We never saw his priesthood end. Why not? Because God is in Melchizedek forecasting what he will complete in Christ to all the offspring of Abraham. This type of Jesus, this type of Christ, his priesthood never ended. You don't have like the rest of Genesis where he died and then he was buried with his family. He died and then he was carried off and his remains were buried and such and such. Then he died and he was no longer with... You don't have that. It's purposefully omitted. Why? Because he is a type of Christ. So as far as the narrative is concerned with teaching you what God will do for you through Jesus, it's omitted because Christ will never die. He is a high priest. How long? Forever? How do we learn about that originally? The ordering or structuring of what God showed through Melchizedek. So are they the same? No. Jesus is supreme. 
Because it's not gospel omissions that lead us to believe Jesus might not have died. Jesus might not have had father or mother. We recognize Jesus is supreme in all of those categories that were forecasted to Abraham and according to God's unchangeable purposes fulfilled for you through Christ. That's how the text concludes right there in verse 3. Neither did he have beginning of days nor end of life but resembling. This is the same concept as ordering. He resembles. Do you notice he isn't the Son of God? It isn't Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. This historical figure resembles the Son of God. So as far as the narrative is concerned, as we look in Genesis 14, he continues a priest forever because he was resembling what God would do in Jesus Christ. So, I conclude with you this answer, that all of you have persevered so diligently through the snow to come. We ask the question, who is Melchizedek? According to the only record we have of him in Holy Scripture, the only record regarding his identity, we may conclude the following four truths about who Melchizedek is, and then finally we will apply what then does this teach me about Christ that I might receive and rejoice in this morning. Four truths concluding about Melchizedek. Number one, he was a living man. He lived. He did have father or mother. He did at some point die. He was a living individual. Number two, he was a righteous king. We got that straight out of the translation of his name as the writer is appealing. He was a righteous king that appeared and blessed Abraham. Number three, he was a righteous king over Jerusalem who ruled in peace. Number three, he was a righteous king over Jerusalem with which he ruled in peace. Number four, he was both king and priest in one of God Most High. He was both king and priest in one of God Most High. As we consider that he was a man who did live, that he was a righteous king, that he ruled over God's people, over Jerusalem, and that, number four, he was both king and priest of God Most High in one office. This makes Melchizedek the perfect type of Christ. Perfect. Because he did live as a man. Our Lord and Savior did live as man, which is critical to the gospel, which was forecasted through Melchizedek. He is a righteous king in whom you hope that will perform acts of justice. He does rule and reign resurrected with peace. Which was forecasted that he would through Melchizedek. 
And this office of king and priest, these offices are combined in one and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is your king, is he not? And he is your high priest. He is a perfect type of Christ that Jesus Christ did fulfill. What does this teach us then finally in application? What then does this teach us, as I briefly summarize there, what does this teach us about Christ that we can rest in today? I would encourage you and isolate this. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of peace. The ordering and the structuring of that translation is significant for you and significant for me as it relates to our lives in Christ. Do you see what the structure is? Think about it in the gospel and the fulfillment of Christ. How do we have peace with God? Experientially, how do we know right now, in this hour, you and I both have peace with God? Because of righteousness. That if we don't have Him as our King, the standard of righteousness, and share in His righteousness, we do not have peace. He is first. What we prize? Justification. A declaration of forgiveness. A declaration of shared righteousness. And thereby experience peace. The ordering of Melchizedek also. Even his name. Forecasts what God will provide each of us in Christ who will fulfill the standard of righteousness and provide us with eternal peace. Let's pray.